what I was seeing in the news versus what I was seeing on the ground in South Africa during apartheid were two very different things. So I had an early, early wake up call. It, it was it was miles and miles and miles of just obliteration. And it looks so similar to Paradise and to Katrina in that there's just nothing left, right? Like not even a sound, like there's no insects, there's no movement, there's just dead. Yeah. And they just kind of come in there, they surround the area, they keep the people who want to help out, they make sure supplies are not getting in, they make sure that the suffering and the uh, harm and the death that's been done even increases more. I mean, I've seen this over and over again. There are so many supplements out there, it's confusing what's best for optimizing your health. Beyond getting your basic nutrition, if there's one vital ingredient for optimal health, it's carbon 60. Why? Because carbon 60 is the world's most effective supplement at reducing inflammation and increasing longevity. Inflammation is a major contributing factor of almost all disease, including Alzheimer's, asthma, cancer, heart disease, obesity, and COVID vaccine injury. If you are serious about your health, try Carbon 60. Be careful though, not all Carbon 60 supplements are equal. I recommend Carbon 60 by Live Longer Labs, the scientists who first brought you Carbon 60 that was suitable for human consumption. They were also first to bring you Carbon 60 in pill form, first to incorporate black seed oil and curcumin, and first to incorporate frequency technology that gives you full spectrum health. You can be confident that you will be buying the absolute best. Buy or learn more with the link below or go to sarahwestel.com under shop. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I have Renette Senum coming to the program. She is really an interesting, phenomenal person. She has been on the ground of Katrina at Paradise. And so she's seeing all of these similarities of what happened at Katrina and Paradise to what's happening now in Maui. And she's going to talk about that. And what she saw on the ground is nothing like what you're hearing in the mass media. And she's going to talk about some of the stories and then what the reality was of what she learned. She was actually a mayor of a town next door to 60 minutes away from paradise. So she got to see some of that stuff from inside, like what's really going on and, and just got a different perspective. And then she was also mayor of a town in California when COVID hit. So she's going to talk a little bit about that as well. And she was the only mayor, the only public official in the state of California that pushed back. And uh, that's an interesting story as well. This is a two-parter. It's pretty long. And I got to tell you, the last time when I said my microphone wasn't working, it actually was pretty good. It, there wasn't really that big of a deal. Uh, my backup microphone was working. This time, my, oh gosh, I just hate it when there's there's problems with technology and there's technical difficulties. But my my voice, I hopefully you will be okay with it. It ended up recording at a really low level. And so we had to enhance it. And we did the best we could to make it sound good. So I hope you're okay with that. It's so interesting, this interview. So please don't let that persuade you to not listen. That being said, I hope you uh, take the time, go to my website, sarahwestall.com, sign up for my newsletter and for sarahwestall.substack.com. I set up this referral thing. If you send 
if you just get three people to sign up for my Substack, you get a month of free stuff of my exclusives my you can't for a month. If you do five people, you get three months. So, and then you, I also give you free eBooks and stuff if you do that. So I'm just trying to get my numbers up. If you uh, could help share, that would be helpful too. And then the last thing I want to say is at sarahwestall.com, please consider supporting my affiliates. There is such amazing products there that I've been curating over the years. The products that I use every day myself, like the greens, I love the greens because it has probiotics, prebiotics, digestive enzyme, and greens. And it's also at a really good price. I have links to that below and I hope you take a look at that. Let's get into this phenomenal conversation with Renette Senam. Hi, Renette. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Sarah. It's great to be here. <laughs> well, I found you and somebody sent me your video and I was like, God, this woman is a great journalist. And I wish I would have known about you a long time ago. And I was listening to your stories about um, uh, in Katrina, you're on the ground in Katrina, you're on the ground in paradise. You've been on the ground in all these different places and you're able to share these stories and then how, what you learned, how that affects your impression of what's going on in Maui. I, I was really fascinated by it because it taught me things. I didn't quite, I, I, I know a lot, you know, I've seen a lot, but it's when you hear the stories firsthand, it, it brings you more awareness. Can you talk about that a little bit? And I'd love to dive into some of the things you learned in Katrina and then Paradise and other places, but talk sure. about kind of your overall, what you do, and then we'll get into that. Sure. So I'm actually here in Northern California in a small town called Nevada City in the Sierra Foothills. And it's my hometown area since I was four years old, though I've lived in other places as an adult here and there. But in 2005, I was very much just, just diving into my community activism and it was very much, I was very much about, uh, <clears throat> well, I was getting into climate change, which I don't believe it any longer, but uh, peak oil, our addiction to oil, and, but also ultimately realizing that I can't change the world, but the best thing I could do is focus on my little tiny town and, 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 and make the changes I want to see in the world there. So that was the beginning. Well, Hurricane Katrina actually hit in, in 2005 at the very end of August. And um, I was hearing about climate change, thinking it was a real thing and these super storms that were going to be our future. And I've just always been one, I've always been naturally um, attracted to the front lines. Like I went down to South Africa in, 19, well, I was actually traveling around the world, but I made a point to go to South Africa in 86, 87 at the height of apartheid. And I'm this little 20, wow. 21 year old and I'm hitchhiking through South Africa and I'm seeing it firsthand. And what I was seeing in the news versus what I was seeing on the ground in South Africa during apartheid were two very different things. So I had an early, early wake up call. And so when Hurricane Katrina struck, I thought, you know, if this is our future and we're going to be having more of these super storms, I want to see what we're in for so I can go back to my community and prepare for it. So I went to Hurricane Katrina and I said, whatever person, individual, church, group ever, you know, passes my, you know, passes near me, I'm going to jump on board with them and go to, to Hurricane Katrina. And sure enough, a Baptist church came along and, and they were going, I'm like, well, I'm not Baptist, but I'll join you. And they were very opening, you know, open, open armed. And so uh, I joined them and I went there and we spent eight days and the level of destruction was staggering. I mean, just I mean, staggering. Huge, and like 
yachts and things that were miles in. And I mean, it, it was it was miles and miles and miles of just obliteration. And it looks so similar to Paradise and to Katrina in that there's just nothing left, right? Like not even a sound, like there's no insects, there's no movement, there's just dead. And and what was happening here was you could see where all the homes used to be because you see these these concrete steps to what used to be the front doors. Yeah. And I have hundreds, if not thousands of, 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 of these in my video footage just going on and on and on, just one after another after another, where all you see is staircase after staircase after staircase leading to nowhere because they were just wiped out. And so we did, we were mucking out houses and homes, trying to clean them up. The ones that were like, kind of, you could kind of like start to recover. We were, we were milling wood. We brought, they actually shipped a mill out from California. We're milling trees to help build like staircases to people's trailers and RVs while they're trying to rebuild. And, um, and, and so we're doing that kind of stuff. And, and I was so, and the stories, the stories were just staggering stories. And I thought, I have got to come back. I've got to come back. So that was in early September. I decided to return Christmas Eve day. And when I returned by that time, I thought, okay, I'm going to bring a camera back. So I got a video camera, did not know where I was going to go, did not know what I was going to do. I was going to be there for like another eight days. And I, I thought, wherever, you know, I'll go over where my camera takes me. And as soon as I landed, <clears throat> and it was quite quiet because it was New Year's Eve day, I get onto a shuttle for the car rental and there's this woman following behind me. She's got all these, uh, you know, animal kennels basically kind of piled in each other like little Russian dolls. And, and I was like, well, what are you doing? She's like, well, I'm doing some animal rescue. There's all these animals. They were left behind. And, and I'm, of course, I'm a huge animal lover. I'm like, why well, can I just follow you? <laughs> and little did I know that when I was going to be going home, I was going to be having two, you know, rescue kitties come with me. So that was unexpected. And so I, I ended, I ended up having already a FEMA card, a little, you know, um, ID badge. I heard hmm? you say that. How did you get that? Right. And, and, and the reason why we got that, interestingly enough, was because when I went with the Baptist church, we went into a church, we cleaned it out to help another Baptist church. And once we got it cleaned out, FEMA took it over. FEMA just came in and they took it over. But they allowed us to still stay there and they gave us little FEMA IDs. Well, don't give me a, don't give me an, you know, don't give me a, an ID like that. That was awesome. So, they, so yeah. they gave me this little tiny ID. And, um, but again, here comes FEMA after we did all this hard work and they took it over, but they're allowing us to still sleep on, you know, on the cots on the floor and, you know, in, in, in the uh, basketball you, court. When they took it over, did they do something productive with it or did they? Just... Uh, not really. I mean, the thing that I've learned is FEMA is there essentially for a cover. Every they're there for a cover, and so um, you know, I'm sure they do some good. But I've I've over and over and over and over again. They just kind of come in there. They surround the area. They keep the people who want to help out. They make sure supplies are not getting in. They make sure that the suffering and the uh, harm and the death that's been done even increases more. I mean, I've seen this for. And over it's again, so hard. Do they do enough yeah. good for the for the mass media to be able to publish it? You know, make some like front cover kind of thing, and then the rest is to do what you think. Right. Yeah. It's it's definitely it's definitely. And again, even like when I went to Occupy Wall Street in uh, Zuccotti Park in New York City, you know, I was there on the ground, and what I saw take place versus how the New York Times reported it and the media reported it was two different things. So I say to people, just make it a rule of thumb. That when you hear an official narrative coming out at an event like this, assume it is absolutely incorrect, 100%, until proven otherwise. I mean, I've never actually known right. an official narrative to be right thus far. 
That's so, part of the waking up process is understanding that you can't trust the media at all. Yes. Yes. You you can't. It's part of the propaganda, their propaganda arm. They're, they're literally covering for the criminal syndicate is what yes, they're doing. Absolutely. They're all one and the same. They're, they're just giving cover. So, so, okay. So you were at Katrina following this woman with rescuing animals which sounds like a, a really cool experience, but you learned so much more during that time. Okay. Right, I learned so much more. So what happens is that because I have this little FEMA card, we get into what's called Plaquemines Parish, which we're told no animals survived, everything's obliterated. And what we're doing is we're going out putting lasagna trays of water and dog food, cat food, anywhere we see little paw prints because there's no clean water. It's all toxic. There's no food. There's not even rats, essentially. Very few rats or mice for the, the cats to even eat. Like there's just, it's decimation. So we, I flip my little ID card because there's a guard, there's actually a FEMA guard right there to get into Plaquemines Parish and he lets us go through. And we're doing our work. And I have to tell you, I came out of this seeing the suffering of the animals. Um, I got, I had PTSD, I actually broke down. That was hard because they're just sitting there in this complete devastation and they're sitting there hungry and shocked. And they're just looking, waiting for the owners to come back and they never come oh. back. And we're trying to trap them. But and they're why all weren't the owners coming back? Because they weren't they allowed, allowed to. Oh, so they knew their animals. They thought their animals might be there, but they couldn't go and get them. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. And they're told they're gone. Watch, they told they're dead. So don't. They're told they're dead, and a lot of them were, but a lot of them weren't. So then, what happened was, as we were driving around this area, it became very clear to me why they did not want anyone back there. It was because the levees. That's where the one of the levees broke. It was very clear what we saw that the levees did not break. They had been blown up. And you could tell because there was big chunks of rock and concrete on the top of the levee, over the levee. And you could see that. And on the other side, you could see they were blown up. So it's like, of course, they don't want anyone back here because you could tell that. And at that point in time, I can still I thought- ask you, can you, hmm. before I can, how can you tell the difference between a levee um, being blown up? So people understand a levee being blown up and a levee just collapsed. You Good know, question. If the levee had just never. broken in, you would see yeah. the debris pushed inwards, right? But it wasn't. It was the debris was all around the inside, the outside, on top of the levee, on the other side. It was actually blown up, so we could see. Okay. We could and you see. you investigated. I mean, you were like, okay, what is this difference here? And you oh were, yeah, we were both like, what the hell? Okay. And we're looking at this, going, wait, this is not because if a levee just broken, you know, it just break in and the debris, at least the debris at that time would be cleaned up or because they had patched it up right and the water's now down. But what we could see was there's still pieces over here and there and around. And we're like, looking at this going, wait a second, this isn't a broken levee. This is, this is blown up. And they, and they weren't done cleaning up. I mean, when we got there on Christmas day, we were, uh, we, uh, we arrived at a little tiny church and as soon as I got there, I, I, I jumped back because there was this casket sitting upright like this. And there was all these caskets everywhere, turned upside down in body bags everywhere. And um, and not all the bodies have been cleaned up yet. So what had happened is that, you know, they they have these mausoleums. They don't put the bodies in the ground because there's too much moisture because you're kind of in swamp land. Yeah. And so what happened was when the levees broke, all these mausoleums and caskets went flying everywhere. So when we were there. There were still body parts and body bags and open caskets everywhere. And so in December. This, this was this was December twenty fifth. Okay. okay. So they weren't done cleaning up the evidence. And so we were seeing things that we should not have seen. And and then the level of devastation, you know, it was 30, 40 feet high in the as, as I mentioned in what you saw, that we could see these things hanging in the in the 
limbs of the trees and, and the bark had been removed from, you know, debris hitting it when it was really high, when the levees first broke. And, and we're, it took us a while to figure out what the heck, and we realized what we were looking at were basically ranch animals, cows and horses that got caught, swept up and caught in those trees. They died. And then of course, over time, all that was left and all that remained were the hides hanging. And, and so it's just that kind of level of devastation. And again, I thought it was climate change. Did not know about weather modification. Did not know yeah. about weather wars. Now I I can quickly identify in almost all the weather weather wars. It's 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 we're we pretty much all of us have never actually seen natural weather fronts and storms. I mean, it's been that manipulated. It's that bad, and it's a domino effect, right? One one storm over here affects you know weather over here. So I came out of that though rather traumatized and and shocked because. I met people along the way. One of them I was discussing on my Substack was a woman named Martha Murphy, who is an oil baroness. And and people, as I was with my camera going around interviewing people, horrendous, horrendous stories. I mean, gut wrenching stories of survival. And people were like, "You've got to talk to Martha Murphy. You've got to talk to Martha Murphy. She has the most extraordinary story of of just survival, of of of, of helping, you know, of, of reaching out to people, being the only one to help people. And then and then her incubator, how she kind of came around and, and rebuilt a, a little tiny town from the bottom up. And so I did meet her on New Year's Eve day. And when I heard her story, and by that time, I'd already gathered up a lot of other stories of how when people were trying to come in, whether they were first responders, doctors, contractors, mostly churches were allowed in, really only churches were really allowed in, um, contractors, doctors, and so on, people with additional supplies, not so much. So you had to kind of get in through the churches. And so it was FEMA, Red Cross, National think, Guard. Hmm? Why do you think only the churches? I, I, you know, I actually don't know. It's a good question. I do not know, but I, what I saw mostly were churches. Because the churches actually can do some <clears> pretty darn good stuff. As you they did, what? you were with the. They can do some pretty good stuff. The churches you were with, yeah. the Baptist church, they were the people who actually are on the front line in churches really are well. Most yeah, the churches. The churches were really amazing. They were organized. They were able to get money together really quickly. You know, like they got a you know mill together. You know, um, real fast and ship it over there so we can actually mill wood. Uh, yeah. So it was really pretty astounding. And there was also, um, it was like the Rainbow Village or something. They were actually serving up a lot of organic food and things like that, a bunch of hippies and so on. Yeah. And, but were they um, allowed they in? Or were they, they, they allowed in, but they got harassed a lot. They actually got in, they had a huge tent, they're doing great work. But man, they got raided and, and, and food By stolen who? and taken away all the time. By who? Was it? They FEMA, did National Guard. Gosh, okay. Yeah, and now we are seeing video footage. We are seeing video footage of boats trying to help with Lahaina, go to Maui with supplies, and here comes uh, FEMA, and they're literally yanking all the supplies off the boats, or the dinghies full of supplies are just yanking them away and taking them taking them off. And I'm like, there you go. It's happening again. It's just incredible. Okay, tell us a story about this baroness, because that's very interesting. So, yeah, it's a story that, you know, I've had for 20 years. And as I said, I, I did interview her for about three hours. And so what happened was she was in like Louisiana. She had a little tiny, um, she had a little tiny, she had, she had an old homestead on the coast. It was her family property, had it for generations and, and they owned an oil company, their Murphy's oil. And, 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 um, and so she wouldn't, the hurricane was hitting, she was in a Buddhist retreat in Colorado. There was nothing she could do, but watch it. 
And as soon as the hurricane passed, she got back in. Her her family land and property was obliterated as well. Like the ranch channels, everything was gone. So she actually went to the next little neighboring town because they actually had fresh water still, whereas her water had been had been tainted. And when she got in, she was the very first person to actually get into that town. And then she ordered a huge RV to come in, a big trailer. And, and as soon as people saw that, they actually thought she was FEMA. And and then she was told there's all these people huddled in a a um a cafeteria of an elementary school they all ran to to survive the hurricane. And when she got there, mold was already growing up the walls and people were sick and traumatized. They reached, they got no help whatsoever. They were on their own, no communication. So people again thought that she was actually like somebody official. So what she did, being the oil baron, oil baroness that she was, is she called in a huge tanker truck full of gasoline, and she's doing five-gallon distributions per family so people could take their chainsaws, cut their way out, get through their homes, clear things. I mean, just brilliant, real simple but brilliant. And after a few days, she, of course, started seeing people's health fail because they didn't have their prescription meds. They didn't have their insulin, all these different things. So being who she was, oh, so when the oil tankers came in originally, here came FEMA and uh, she's she's like five foot two, five foot four, very petite Southern belle. She's in her fifties at the time. And FEMA came in and they actually held a gun to her head and they accused her of being a looter. And she's like, my name is Martha Murphy and this is my oil tanker. And they let her go. And then here comes the national guard and they do the exact same thing. They hold a gun to her head. And she's like, my name is Martha Murphy. This is my oil tanker. And they finally let her go. And that's when she distributes the gas. Um, so now after three days, people are falling ill. People are going to be dying soon if they aren't already. And so who, being who she is, she actually gets a hundred thousand dollars worth of pharmaceuticals shipped in. And as I mentioned, like some of this stuff was not even on market yet. And she starts doling out. In fact, a little, I remember it was like an eight or a little 10 year old girl in a t- huge tent had little pie tins. And she was like, literally distributing the medications and putting them out for people to take a little like 10 year old. And what was beautiful in all of this, Sarah, was that I heard so many people say to me, and this is shocking, by the way, this is shocking under in the, in the context of what I was seeing. People were saying that Hurricane Katrina was the best thing that ever happened to their family because it was the first time their children set down their Xboxes and actually connected with the family and the adults. And they were That's actually- assuming their family didn't die. Well, a hundred percent, right? I mean, a lot of families died. A lot of people died. But what they're saying is that in this complete turmoil and destruction, this is what brought them together. And now, did they survive after that? Did they continue to be tight-knit? I don't know. But it, it took that kind of trauma and experience for, for to bring the families together. And they did. You know, they all came together and very close and they realized how much they appreciated each other. Uh, I mean, I had people saying, look, it, it didn't matter if you're Buddhist, Christian, Muslim, you know, right. uh, you know, you know, Latter Day Saints. Religion, color did not matter. Everybody was reaching out to everybody. So there's some beautiful moments as well. Yeah. So, so she she brings in these pharmaceuticals now, and of course, when this happens, here comes FEMA, here comes the National Guard, and again, they put a gun to her head and they accuse her of being a looter. And once yeah. again, she's like, "My name is Martha Murphy. I'm trying to help these people. Do you mind?" So she's so frustrated. She goes to the local sheriff and says, "Can you please deputize me?" Because the deputy, right, the sheriff supersedes FEMA. They supersede the National Guard. Yeah. And she's like, deputize me so I can actually help these people without having you know guns put to my head. And, and she gets deputized. And so 
they start cleaning out the place. And then at that point in time, she actually gets two of the architects who helped with 9-11 after they're like rebuilding and she brings them in and they build this simple little business incubator. And what they do is they design this thing where you can have like a dentist, a mechanic, a shoe shop, whatever you need. And this business incubator would be basically where it's rent free for two years. You have to pay just for your water, your you know electricity or gas. And, and as long as you continue to work on building up your business and in two years time, move on to a different location. So she did this and this this jump-started that little tiny community. It was brilliant. And I'd never heard of anyone doing that anywhere in any disaster area whatsoever. And so when I did my Substack last week, I wanted to share with people, like, look at you guys, this is what happened in Hurricane Katrina. Um, this has been happening in ever, every single event ever since. Um, there's this kind of devastation that happens that just levels the area. FEMA always comes in. National Guard always comes in and they always try to stop and prevent people from helping and getting supplies in. They make matters worse every single time. They're also trying to block people out to stop them from seeing the crime scene, essentially. And now as we're watching Lahaina rolling out, we're seeing that people are blockaded. They even have a wall built up for dust. And of course, we're now seeing that people are trying to get supplies in and they're being stopped and the supplies are being taken away. And just like Hurricane Katrina, just like Paradise, the death tolls always far, far, far higher than what we're ever told because they don't want people to know because they become outraged. They become mad. And you were on the ground at Paradise too. You were there. Well, oh, right? I'm here in Nevada City. So we're 60 miles away as the crow flies. And so I went in there a couple of weeks after it happened as well. And, and at the time I was on the city council, I was the vice mayor. So I just flipped my you know, my business card saying, hey, I'm vice mayor and I'm actually here to really, you know, kind of do an accounting, see what's going on so I can go back and report to my city and, and really try to make sure this does not happen to us. And, and it's true, I really was doing that. So I went and I saw, um, and it was very similar in that nobody was allowed in. They're really trying to keep people out so you couldn't see what was going on. It was a complete obliteration. And, and while I'm told, well, you know, the reason why the trees don't burn is because they're they're full of you know water. You know the the trunks don't burn. There were a lot of trees with greenery on them, and granted they were brown and kind of you know they're brown. They're torched, so much heat. But there's why were they not annihilated? Why the house next to it was or the the car and and. I have talked to firefighters to say, Renette, it's not uncommon for cars to melt. The aluminum will melt. I'm like, okay, I understand that. But I am seeing that the leaves next to the melted cars, the leaves and the trees next to the house, they might be brown and crispy, but why haven't, why haven't they been turned to dust? What and so I, I, did, hmm? you get an, did you figure out an answer for that? Well, I mean, I think the answer is, is that we're, we're, we're seeing direct energy weapons. I think that, I, I think that, Americans have to really come to grips with the fact that the weather's highly modified, the weather has been the weather has been weaponized, and that they're using direct energy weapons much more so than we realize, and that this this war game is far 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 more advanced and far more dangerous than people really have any uh, idea of at all. I think you're right, but okay. So now that you're seeing these patterns, uh, Maui, we're seeing the same thing, right? I mean, we're yes. it, it, there's just and so when you have this experience, you see it again, and you're like, oh, my God. But after hindsight ends up being 2020 a lot of times, and maybe not so much because it's hard to figure out, but 
what do they do with these places once it's devastation? You know, once they've cleared this out, and because what's the point of it? What Every, it's their land that? grabs. They're land grabs. One hundred percent land grabs. Every what, single time they're people, <clears throat> the insurance companies. Um, well, first of all, you almost always see beforehand certain planning, you know, documents put into place like, oh, this is what we're going to do in the future. Like with Maui, New, uh, you know, um, Santa Rosa, you know, Paradise, um, New Orleans. We're like, oh, these are our, our sustainable goals. And again, I'm all about sustainability. I'm about, you know, local economies. and But it's the mom and pop version, not the United Nations version. But that's and, how they're getting everybody to support it is because. A hundred percent. And it and, makes and sense. And it's like, okay, well, I'm for sustainability too, but not you well, guys. Well, and I have to tell you, sense also. Around 2007, I was like, damn it. I started to see, we're talking about sustainability and, you know, having sustainable plans. And I saw the United Nations grabbing this, you know, sustainability. I'm like, oh, they just hijacked the word sustainability. So fine. We'll use the word resiliency. Next thing you know, you watch the United Nations still and hijack the word resiliency. Every single time we would come up with a countermeasure with different language, they would hijack it every single time. And so sustainable goals, you know, we have sustainable goals and they have sustainable goals and they would weaponize it. So they literally watch what we do yeah. and they just hijack the words and they, they weaponize it for themselves. So we've seen this well, over and over. And, and see over. what that does politically. Okay. They take it and they weaponize it. And then the people that this is what creates a bigger divide and conquer scenario too, because the people who, who see you know on the other side of the aisle they see that and go let's weaponize they see all the bad stuff too and it's like well no this was taken over kind of like black lives matter was taken over and weaponized yeah it's like that taken over, taken over, over. Take, you know it's taken over or it was created from the get-go right it's kind of hard to it tell it could have been that too yeah you're was right that, was that hijacked or was that taken over and, and you know co-opted it, it I don't could know. have been either but, yes but, but either way it doesn't matter in the end, end it doesn't matter it's like it's been hijacked it's 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 a cover for a criminal syndicate. And so when I talk about anything like sustainable, resilient, and so on, I'm always talking about the decentralized version. The version that is not centralized in the hands of you know a few you know few entities. Um, because anything that's centralized, you're screwed. You're whether it's a food <laughs> network screwed. system, banking system, media system, you're screwed. The number one rule is it's got you know, your your energy, your electrical grid. Number one rule is it's all got to be decentralized into micro and then regional, never, ever centralized. I'm talking about the decentralized version every single time. So I started seeing how uh, our real incredible grassroots uh, work, which was incredible, was being co-opted. The language kept getting co-opted and co-opted until finally we kind of, we ran out of words. <laughs> you know, I don't That's know. Right. Know. You can't even go, use words because every single you one. You can't even use be, words anymore. They're yeah. co-opted, you know? And so every time I go on an interview, I just say, okay, I want to make this very clear. I'm not talking about the United Nations 2030 agenda. I'm talking about the mom and pop decentralized version. And I've got to make a disclaimer. And so we're seeing this, that there's, so these, there's this, there's a pattern where there's always this pre-conference, pre-meetings, pre-planning of like, oh, in the future, we want to make this a smart city, a smart island. We want to do da-da-da-da. We want to be the most sustainable, you know, you know, United Nations sustainable development by 20. And then the next thing you know, they get obliterated. And like, oh my gosh, this is so great. We can now do what we want to do because 
insurance is not covering it like it should. It gets slowed down. The planning commissions in place will not approve anything. People can't afford it anyway, or the, requ the requirement to clean up this toxic land is so extraordinarily expensive. The insurance doesn't cover it. They don't okay it. They can't do it. Or yes, your insurance policy will pay for the house, but you gotta you gotta build the foundation, you know, things like that. And so we've seen that in Santa Rosa, we've seen that in Paradise, we've seen that in New Orleans. And so my message to Maui. My message to Lahaina is like, look at guys, this is what they're going to do. And you've got to stand firm, stand in your place, know what the game plan is, and and and, and, and take, take note of what Martha Murphy did. We need people out there who have millions of dollars who can actually go out there and help build incubators and allow the people, the Lahainas, right, allow the islanders to actually put the kind of businesses and rebuild the community they want. And it, more than likely, it won't be a tourist community. They don't really want the tourists there. We need the tourists right now. They need the money. But, you know, there's been a conflict, right? It's a growing conflict with, between the tourists and the and the locals. So it's like, let let them lead, let the Hawaiians lead. And then we have to back them up. Whatever it is they make a choice to do on their land that has been stolen, we need to back them up, however that may look. And so there are ways to go about this in, 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 in a, to, to rebuild relatively fast because you can take note from what, what Martha Murphy did after Hurricane Katrina. And so I wanted to get that word out to people and say, look it, because right now we have now seen there's these there's this upcoming meeting in September on making Maui a the first smart island, right? I, uh, I mean, I'm like, it's oh, not what, funny. What, what's it's just, this? my gosh, it's so obvious. It's so obvious. So when you see this stuff, you know, you see the pattern, then you're like, okay, fool me once, you know, shame on me, fool me twice or shame on you and then shame on me. And, uh, and so it's like, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Don't, and people on the outside do not trust, do never trust the official narrative. I can tell you right now, it's 100% not correct. And, um, and you have to always listen to the victims. You always have to listen to the people who are actually there and you've got to do everything in your power to reach out to them, to hear their story, because their story is going to be the accurate story. In fact, I've got people right now in Northern California, Dr. Barlando of Alpha Veda, who they're, they're beautiful homestead, which is extraordinary, is surrounded by fires, unnatural fires. They're there. He and his dear friend, Mike Wind, who do these beautiful uh, podcasts, um, they're surrounded by fire and they're firefighters. And they're like, there's nothing natural about this. They know firsthand, these are unnatural fires and that these are being strategically placed to destroy them. And it's very clear to me that this is a huge, fast moving agenda to burn us out and either send us out of the state of California or send us towards the cities where they can have more control of us. And the cities are a bloody nightmare right now, an oh, yeah. absolute bloody nightmare. They, they're really bad. Yeah. So, okay, people are giving money to Red Cross. They're giving it to these you know, other organizations. They really need to be getting because there's so much money out there. But if it was organized towards a, some of these groups that could do what you're talking about, we wouldn't have these problems. But the Red Cross, right? No, and, and again, it's away. because we're listening. We're listening to false narratives. You have to understand. You know, it, and it's such a setup. I mean, I've seen it over and over again. The, the media really is covering for the, 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 the crimes. It's really, that's what's going on. And uh, the, the media is complicit. The politicians are complicit. The corporations, the NGOs are all complicit. They've all been hijacked. And people ask me, you know, because I've 
been a two-time mayor, city council person. I did run for governor in the state of California, which was also fascinating from the inside. And um, uh, you have to understand that when people say, can we correct it? Can we, can we, you know, turn this boat around? And my answer to that is absolutely not. No, no. This is a nasty, evil snake. It's it's going to have to eat itself alive. It is going to implode. And we have to be ready to bridge the gap between the old paradigm and the new paradigm. But it's, I still go down to Sacramento. I still testify before the Senate against stupid bills. And there's thousands of them that are ramrodding to streamline 5G and take away parental rights. I mean, it's, it's I mean, it's, uh, Sarah, it's. I know. It's, I know. Because I'm in, I'm in. I'm in the Twin Cities and some of the things that they are doing here with um, transgender, the children can get without parents. And, and I mean, some of these extreme things that it makes, it makes no sense. It's too well, it makes sense it's a, it's when you... a, it, It's been hijacked and weaponized. And, yeah. and then they're using the, the good nature of people against themselves. Right, which is what they did with COVID, right? I'm in a very liberal town. The, the county is more, you know, kind of purple. And when I was mayor and COVID hit, and I went out there and I actually called out as an elected official in the state of California to publicly like blast out on Facebook to, you know, Newsom, uh, Governor Newsom, that, hey, you do not have unilateral power to go out there and force a medical device on every single Californian's face. You don't need to. It's unnecessary. We have other options. And all hell broke out. And my community to this day thinks that I've gone to the dark side because I, I have dedicated myself to this town, dedicated like 2,000 hours a year. And when I did not care enough to put a mask on, did not care enough to, to tell people to put a mask on, they saw it as betrayal. And what was happening was the system was actually taking advantage of their goodwill, right? Of, of their deep caring, because they care about people. That's and right. they saw what I was doing as, as just, uh, I, I mean, they, they literally would say, Renette, we don't know who you are. We thought you cared about us. I'm like, I do care about you. I care about you so much. I'm willing to take the arrows. I care about you so much. I'm willing to actually lose all of my friendships to That's try right. to save your health and your lives. And to this day, they still don't get it. And so what happened was it took advantage of their goodness. It took advantage of their goodwill. And, and we see that over and over and over again. So we believe that the Red Cross is there for, for you know, to benefit humanity. We think FEMA is there. It's like, no, they've been hijacked. They've they're all using been their mental construct against them. That's how they're yes. doing it. It's a mental construct yes. and they're using it against them. Now, how does, how does that make you feel when you know, because I'm the same way. I was in the Twin Cities. I was one of the only ones in my entire town walking around without a mask on. How, how does that make you feel? I mean, are you making some progress? Uh, not in this town, no. Mm -mm. No. Um, they haven't, I mean, I that's the injured, the vaccine injured. I mean, none you know, of that is getting through they, to people. They just, either they just can't see it, they're not willing to see it. Because, you know, I mean, you have to think about that. People who force their employees to get the shot, who said that mom and dad, you can't see your, your new your your new grandchild until you get the shot, you know, uh, you know, the employees, their colleagues who are forcing and pushing and pressuring and, and vilifying, right? Um to have to come with grips that you were lied to, seriously betrayed, and that you may have ultimately 
shortened or already ended the lives and at the very least the well-being of those around you, loved ones and employees and stuff. I don't think, I think a lot of people are going to go to their graves, never, ever, ever admitting what happened to them and what they did to others. I think it's just too big. You think they're so delusional? The fact that they aren't, they're willing to implement another, because they're in, they've come, they're trying to push it in this fall. Not a surprise. We knew this was happening. We we absolutely knew this was happening. This is all according to plan. I'm like a couple weeks late, but okay. But they're they're working on it. Do you think those same people will say, okay, I made a mistake last time, but I'm not going to help them kill people? Well, already already there is a third, uh, a, a poll just came out where a third of Americans believe that they know somebody, if not themselves, who've been vaccine injured. That's right. Uh, so that's that's right there. Is I think it's over fifty percent. I thought, but go ahead. Well, it could be. In, 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 I personally, I think it probably is fifty percent. You know, especially yeah. those who you know can quietly admit it to themselves. It should I, be a hundred percent of the people. It should be, that- or, or they've gotten, or they've gotten COVID over and over and over. I mean, I have not received a shot. I don't. I've never gotten COVID. I don't think I've gotten COVID. You know, the healthiest I, ones I, are the ones who haven't got any that did anything. Yeah. So. But, you know, and you I have friends all around me who've gotten all the shots and they keep getting sick over and over no, and over again. No, so, it's just like, hello. And so well, you, they will. I think they've, I think they're part of a hive mind now. I actually don't know completely if they're thinking for themselves. I, I hate to say this, but there's, again, these shots contain a technology. Yeah, you think and it's, it's and I'm not really I'm not sure how much of them who can who are actually sovereign minds that can think independently. I'm not really sure. And um, it's too stupid, uh, right? It's too much. Like, how can you not see that you're part of this and that it, it's just too much? And so that's how I've come to the conclusion. There has to be some frequency weaponry, you know, mind control type stuff because this is too much. Well, and you know, my we always ask, like, why did we not fall for it? Like, what was different about us? Yeah. The big question we always ask, like, why? You know, it's like the million dollar question, like, how did we see it? And we, you know, we, we never, we've never really landed on the answer. I, I think that people who didn't care if they're on the in group or the out group, popular or unpopular, you know, people who don't care, you know, uh, are more likely to say, ah, I'm not being a part of this. You know, it's kind of a mystery, but. Um, you know, I think a lot of these folks, though, I, I think what's happened too is a lot of them have also been terribly traumatized. I did another Substack recently about the duck and cover videos in the 50s for the A-bomb, how you know, hiding under your desk, your new pa- newspaper is going to save you from an A-bomb. And well, of course, the government knows that that's bull. Of course, that's not going to spare you from an A-bomb. <laughs> so why would they do that? So why would they do that? Because the plan was not to save you from an A-bomb. The plan was to traumatize you, to make you think that any split second you're on death's door and just do as they say. It's called fear appeal. It's called Biderman's chart of coercion. It's what they use on prisoners of war to break you down, right? To break you down so that you will do whatever they say. And we have now, Sarah, generations, generations of psychologically, emotionally traumatized Americans. Yeah, abuse people. Now, do you think that people like us trying to break them out of it? I mean, it's working a little bit, right? You're it, you're it, going to all. There's some people who are in the middle, and and I have to say, there's been people in the middle, and if they drop to any side whatsoever, it's always to our side. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah. never drop to the other side. Like, oh, I really wish I would have gotten that shot. That just doesn't happen. They're in the middle, like ah, I don't know, and they drop over to our side. So 
our team is growing and growing, but as we grow, the, 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 the evil team is going to push and push and push because they know they're losing. That's why you see the weather wars. That's why you see the hurricanes. That's why you see the these these fire infernos. That's why you see the incineration. Why, why are they doing this fire infernos? Because all it's doing is waking up more people. Like the people in Maui are the, it's the race. waking up more people. Right. It's a race to the finish line. They're it's trying to get their control and their domination, get their agenda in place before we can stop. Right. And I've dealt with this on a micro level because we have the number 13 Masonic Lodge here in Nevada City. And the Masons are very much an, uh, a part of this, a huge part of this, the Masons, the Illuminati. They're a part of it. And there's a reason why there's a Masonic Lodge in every single town pretty, in city around the world. It's kind of creepy when you think about it. And so, um, oh gosh, we were just talking about the Masons. Uh, uh, I just lost my thought on that. Uh Oh, so uh, so I've seen so I've seen on a local level, just basically when they start losing control, their attitude is like, okay, we're going down, we're losing control, we're not gonna win, but we're taking you with us. And that's what's happening right now. We're losing control, but we're taking you with us. That's what they're doing. As many numbers as they can get, the more fear that they can get out there, the more deaths and mayhem they can create, the the the, the more satisfied they are as they go down in flame. <laughs> 